Hi, this is Lex, and welcome to the Fintech Blueprint. It's your podcast about fintech, decentralized finance, digital banking, investing, robo-advice, artificial intelligence, and all the other frontier technology that is transforming financial services. To get more content, like an illustrated transcript of this conversation in your inbox, subscribe at fintechblueprint.com. So without further delay, let's jump into today's episode. Welcome, everybody. I'm so excited for today's conversation. We have with us Gene Hoffman, who is the Chief Operating Officer and President of the Chia Network. We're going to talk about really amazing entrepreneurial journeys, as well as blockchain, protocols, money, and where all of this stuff is going. So with that, Gene, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for having me, Lex. My pleasure. I love starting the conversation by trying to understand where you come from, you know, where you started and where you come from and some of the definitional experiences and scar tissue that you've had in the tech space. Maybe we we go to the 90s and the first pass at the internet. Can you talk a little bit about your experience at that time, what you were seeing and the directions and choices that you had made? Yeah, so in fall of 93 I started college at the University of North Carolina and it was interesting because people don't think about UNC as being a very central school to the internet, but it was. It was both, uh, you know, internet news and Linux was hosted locally on Sunsite. I downloaded Mosaic, you know, early Netscape, right? And in the Southeast, thunderstorms are a thing. And I watched a real-time radar scene of a thunderstorm coming toward campus and sitting there, you know, real-time color, no television interdiction, it, it's kind of hard for a modern person, you know, a younger person these days to think about how big a thing that was. But it was very, very clear to me that this was going to be transformational. And, you know, that led to some friends and I spending a lot of time going, okay, there's a huge opportunity here. What should we do? And it led us to invent internet ad blocking, actually. How did that connection happen? Well, originally, some of my friends were talking about starting an ISP, and you know, my view was kind of, well, okay, there's going to be those, but there's not going to be a lot of differentiation. And as we were having this conversation, the first ad on Hotwired appeared, and we had a pretty good sense of how the protocols worked and what HTTP 1.0 looked like, and it became very clear to me that as an end user, we could empower you, decide what parts of a web page you download. And that end user empowerment issue is something I think that's been resonating through my career since. How early on was it clear to you what the internet was turning into? I guess that's a very loaded question, right? But I'm responding to you seeing the ad monetization model as something that might infringe on choice and privacy and that might power maybe an adversarial relationship. I guess, how did you see that and what was your journey through that? Well, I mean, not only did we see it that way, but we invented what we call the cookie cutter. And it is now kind of the modern browser interface to cookie management. But at the time, there was really no way to manage a cookie. You know, cookies had been kind of thrown together by the Netscape team at 1.0 or 1.1. And it was, to me, the really actually somewhat Machiavellian piece of all this. Like the straight ad business was, eh, whatever. But the, you know, cross-site tracking... Though it's got value, and I don't think it's necessarily evil, I do think it's something you want to make sure that end users have control of. Absolutely. So was this what you were doing at PGP or at another firm? Well, so we, we at PriveNet was the name of the company at the time. We knew that this was going to be the application that got us on the map, and it did. We were on Headline News, we were in the New York Times, it was a thing. But we also wanted to build a real grown-up software company. And so we started building a PGP rip-in to Netscape Mail, 
And this was about the time that the government stopped prosecuting Phil Zimmerman. And we reached out to PGP Inc., the new PGP Inc., to license PGP. And they flew us out and turned the tables, and we were the first acquisition they made after they bought the original commercial rights to PGP back. How did that feel to go through that process so quickly? It was amazing. You know, I was lucky. I had some friends who went to Stanford as well. So I'd been out here and visited the local area and kind of already loved it. I mean, living on the East Coast as a tech person, like in Chapel Hill, what we were talking about, you could have a conversation at lunch and no one would know anything. But out here, there were billboards about databases. It was a very different world. and We were excited to join it. And, you know, in some ways, no faster way to join it than with something with so much potential in PGP. Right. And now in 2022, we have Super Bowl commercials with Tom Brady selling us cryptocurrency. So how things have come to the mainstream is quite incredible. Yep. And, you know, the PGP experience is why I sit here, you know, helping Bram build a new cryptocurrency. I was lucky enough to be in the audience when Ian Goldberg disclosed his new invention around double-blind Chamian digital signatures. A lot to unpack there. Cham was one of the first kind of serious digital cash attempts, Chamian money. And the problem with it was it was sort of slightly anonymous instead of fully anonymous. Can you put a date on this for us, please? Yeah, this is a 97 spring. You know, I, I tell people I've been in cryptocurrency for 25 years, and that's why. So it really made it clear to me that crypto could not just secure our communications, but could potentially like secure our human rights. The way I describe this to people is it immediately hit me that it's like, okay, no one will ever flee a tyrant with a bag of diamonds ever again if we can get this stuff deployed. There's a funny story here. I was looking at starting a cryptocurrency company in 1997 as PGP was sold to McAfee. Through a friend, Neil Stevenson kind of knew about this, and there's a little bit of pieces of this in Cryptonomicon. But my now wife looked at me and went, strange Caribbean island surrounded by armed guards. Can we go back to the United States? Probably not. You should do that music thing. And that's where emusic.com came from. Gotcha. Yeah. For anyone who has not read the Cryptonomicon, it's sometimes incredible to see text that has so much foresight, so much predictive power as to what came to be. Another book that I'm obsessed with, or I thought for me at least did something similar was Accelerando by Strauss, where I felt like he predicted DAOs and decentralized finance almost on the dot. Yeah. And, you know, it's really funny, too, because like in Cryptonomicon, whatever you see, of course, Nova Wardham, it was PGP. It was really wild to watch the like PGP text installer that my future co-founder of multiple companies wrote at the time. So, you know, it, it was we cypherpunks and I used to run the cypherpunks meeting for PGP. We were kind of on this bleeding edge and we knew where we were all going. It was just a matter of figuring out how the heck to get there. And, you know, that kind of fast forwards to thank you, Satoshi. I'm doing my best to not go down the rabbit holes because they're so interesting. Let's go into the music experience, right? So again, what was, when you looked around at that moment, what is it that you saw and what was your realization? Well, the, the key insight that I saw was the just tremendous amount of interest in MP3. You know, you had college high-speed links at the time just full of MP3s. And once you kind of see that demand use case, it's now a question of, okay, how do we turn that into something that can be legitimate and in the light of day and actually solve for what and why people were so excited about MP3s? In many ways, that was the hardest part was trying to teach the record business that, in fact, this customer demand meant they had a product that just had to make it as easy to use as what people were already expecting or better, right? And it took quite a few years, and it also took Bram kind of coming in and telling them they had no choice indirectly with BitTorrent. And those things, the, the key kind of insights were that 
people don't necessarily want to make a buying decision about every single thing they buy. And the credit card network, which is what we bolt the internet onto right now, is particularly poorly designed to do a transaction less than $5. And when you put those two facts together, you know, subscription and Spotify and, you know, the Apple, uh, you know, subscription music service, it's no surprise that's where we went. But in many ways, you know, what excites me about cryptocurrency in one direction is the ability to stop having to live with that assumption. You know, you now can start talking about, well, you know, if I'm only paying like two-tenths of a cent, do I even care? And you can do that in a way that might actually scale and work. And it's one of the things I'm excited about longer term. I don't think, in fact, you know, we're going to see a lot of those models in the very short term and maybe even the medium term. But I think long term, when we have people who have wallets as their primary view to how Web3 works and that they understand that these very small transactions are kind of not important to them, but critically important to content creators, I think there's a huge new venue there. Absolutely. So, Going back to you know that music moment for me, I was I was a consumer of file sharing and peer to peer, and I remember the feeling of the moment where there was a utopia associated with this bounty of whether it's MP3s or internet websites, you know, or eventually video with YouTube down the line and so on, and there was this feeling of. We finally broke in capitalism such that everything is remix culture, everything can be combined and shared, and finally knowledge is free, right? Given that you you thought about ads almost, you know, half a decade before, if not earlier, how did you see that moment? And then how are you building the company? What thesis was the company built around? Well, so there's this kind of core thesis where the spirit and the means and the technologies here absolutely head in that direction, right? I mean, there's no argument that BitTorrent and MP3 and later AAC files didn't lead to a world with much broader choice, you know, much easier ease of use, all of these really wonderful things. But the reality is that these technologies have to fit somewhat into the existing models. You know, it was, there were a lot of venture capitalists in the 99, 2000, 2001 period saying that copyright was dead. And it's kind of hard to overturn a couple hundred years of constitutional history. So I think one of the opportunities has always been to look at, okay, we know what the drivers of these technologies are. We kind of know what their constraints are. And the positive is that these technologies are adding constraints. So like BitTorrent makes it so that if the TV and movie business becomes too fractured and too expensive, well, people will go back to BitTorrent. But it allows the content creators to go, no, look, you know, if we keep it relatively together and relatively inexpensive, people would rather pay us than go to BitTorrent. I think we're seeing the same sort of thing again in the blockchain space. And, you know, the thing that's really neat about the way that Satoshi launched and built something is it's now kind of created a clearly blazed path that people can follow behind. And, you know, you've got the same sorts of things that you have with BitTorrent and other protocols where there's no real way to shut them down when they're truly decentralized like Bitcoin or like Chia. And amazingly, you know, I use the word compliant blockchain and people think I'm crazy, but it turns out that Bitcoin is a compliant blockchain. You know, it never sold securities. It is a, you know, peer-to-peer trustless network that delivers on its promises. And so I think always, you know, it is taking the best of the technology to empower individuals and frankly secure human rights, but at the same time making them palatable to like the other 80% of the world who's got to use them. I mean, ultimately you want these technologies embraced as widely as possible because that's how you get the most value out of them for everybody. 
I think one of the things that I am trying to aim at framing is I do think there is a tension between what peer-to-peer meant 20 years ago and some of the principles that were embedded into it versus some of the instantiation of those ideas in the crypto ecosystem today, where in many good ways and both bad, it's hard to imagine a, you know, a more effective DRM system than NFTs. And I remember the emotions I had and that kind of swirled around in the mid-2000s about music labels coming together, trying to you know, create DRM or movie or other media companies trying to do that with DVDs. And then all of that kind of melting down in the face of consumer demand out of MP3 players and Apple, as essentially all the equilibrium ended up getting broken. But now we're in this completely different end of the spectrum where because the internet has value, the objects that are shared or that that are transacted around have value too. And so you do have this new kind of hyper-capitalist underpinning that feels to me quite different. So I'm very curious as to your view and your journey and kind of how to reconcile some of these cultural tensions between, you know, these two different visions of the internet. Well, so, you know, I think one thing that's very important, you know, Bram and I are like two of the only people to ever be accused of being pirates by an NGO. I was a bit of an iconoclast to say that, you know, in fact, MP3 should be unencrypted and we should trust our customers. The thing that's interesting about NFTs is that title is now, in some senses, digitally rights managed, but the content remains not. And I think that's important. You know, right click save. And in fact, most of the board apes are on BitTorrent right now. There is no kind of such thing as DRM. There's, there's what we can do with public key cryptography and signatures. But after that, you kind of can't control the copying of something. You can control whether it's the original version or not, but you can't control whether somebody can, you know, see that artwork share that artwork, those kinds of things. I do think there's a tension that's important, but I think that the technology has been designed in such a way that it continues to keep all of the key pieces. And by the way, this is why I worry a bit about some of the you know, hyperscale chains with limited number of decentralized nodes. When you do these blockchains right, they're basically unstoppable in the way that BitTorrent is unstoppable. And you know, it's pretty well understood that Bitcoin was named in homage to BitTorrent. When you do it the right way, you've built in a certain set of core assumptions that any two people can transact in a way that transaction is very unlikely to be censored. There is a full real audit trail of that. And you know, you're building a whole new paradigm of trust. At no lay level do we change that. Now we do get more financially sophisticated when we start kind of taking traditional finance products and tools modifying them somewhat, because I think the real opportunity in cryptocurrency and blockchain is that you take things like corporate debt, and instead of paying semi-annually, you pay it like weekly or daily. So its price reflects its actual active price instead of its, you know, coupon discount price. But that's kind of boring compared to, you know, the real opportunity of being able to trade with someone with no escrow agent immediately between too many assets on a blockchain in a way neither person can screw each other. That's a whole new paradigm that we just haven't had as humans. Let me try to trace a little bit maybe of this idea out, which is that you know property isn't a monolithic thing. Property is a bundle of rights that we have relative to each other. And it is enforced or not enforced through particular mechanisms, whether those mechanisms are the law, the courts, 
or software. And so it sounds like, and maybe correct me if I'm mischaracterizing, but you know, we had this existential moment that broke down the prior bundle of property rights into maybe too far out on the continuum where everything was essentially free and tradable and the prior economic models didn't work and therefore we had the crank into the world of advertising and tracking and so on. But then as cryptocurrencies and blockchains were built and came to the mainstream, it's not that you're introducing DRM against all the property rights and re-empowering the labels to go back to the status quo, but rather that you're being maybe more precise about which rights flow according to what rule set and empower whom. So the ability to consume might be separated from the ability to monetize or you know build rents around or build some sort of financial enterprise. And so in a sense, it sounds like you're trying to get to the best of both worlds. Is that a fair telling of it? Yeah, I think it's absolutely a fair telling of it. I mean, you're basically saying we now have this ability to prove ownership in a way that was very difficult in the digital realm and prove unique ownership while not losing you know, the core thing that these things are copyable. That's kind of the point. And that really kind of changes the underlying dynamics. You know, in many ways, as music entered Web 2, it was getting it on the web and making it available to the end user. As music enters Web 3, you all of a sudden have the financial infrastructure that has you know, built over the last 150 years offline. You've got the tools to not necessarily replicate it, but to manage the problems that were managed by record labels and music publishers and shippers of music and retailers. You know, all of a sudden, you don't necessarily need as many people to be able to me, middlemen to be able to drive value, make it easy for people to pay, make it clear who owns something, make it clear what bundle of rights you got. I mean, I'm excited about NFTs that do things like, hey, if you buy this special version of my song, you can use it in your YouTube channel, right? That's a really hard process these days in the real world. But for an artist who owns his songs, that's actually a relatively straightforward process in Web3. I imagine, you know, a music label responding to quote unquote piracy or sharing as like, this is mine, you know, don't copy it. Only I can have it, you know. And then if I think about an NFT owner today, sure, go ahead and copy it. You're just giving me free marketing. You know, the more you copy it, the more value I get from the fact that this brand is spreading all over the world. And so it did need this kind of existential shaking, I think, to get to a more atomic place. Well, it's it's funny. It even goes all the way back to the credit card issues. You know, the, the internet is a bolt-on on top of the credit card infrastructure. And the credit card infrastructure was built to do transactions in the 10 to $100 range. You know, no one's really going to strongly argue that a song's worth 10 bucks. We went through that era. It was called the CD era, right? It kind of sucked. So what's exciting is to all of a sudden say to people that, in fact, you know, you could opt out if you wanted to, but automatically, if you play this, you know, point zero zero one cents, we'll go back to the artist. That's an exciting, different way to do things. So I want to go through one more experience before getting into Chia Network, and that is your experience with subscriptions. And it almost, you know, from the outside, it does seem like yet another take or another approach to this question of monetization and advertising and you know how to think about digital assets or digital objects can you talk about i mean it's hard to characterize such a meaningful part of your career but can you talk about the insight that took you to to that role and kind of how it went 
So it was very clear to me when I was you know, founding eMusic that the record labels weren't yet ready for subscription. It was already enough of a mind shift to get them into digital downloads, much less subscription. But Napster's uh, appearance on the scene forced the hand of all the music companies and it made it much easier for us to go back and go, look, the only way we're going to be able to compete with piracy is subscription. So that really kicked that forward. But then quickly, us and the former CEO of Netflix, we had a bunch of mutual friends. We'd actually do a quarterly conference call about how bad and difficult the credit card infrastructure was. And so that ended up as we built eMusic and I sold it to Universal and helped launch the iTunes Music Store. When Vivendi fell apart and I left, it was very clear to me that music, movies, TV, software, you know, you name it, if it was intellectual property and even physical property, you know, think Dollar Shave Club, that subscription infrastructure was going to be critical. And so my previous company was really building the kind of Cadillac version of how do we get credit card infrastructure to behave in a way that works well for high-scale consumer subscription services. And this was one of the major kind of grease in the wheel to getting over the top television to actually start working. You know, we, uh, at Vendicia, was my previous company, we helped the NFL, NASCAR, and the NBA all go direct consumer over the top. And kind of without that billing and customer management infrastructure for subscription, it would have been much harder for them to actually launch and see how serious an opportunity over the top television was. How would you characterize the state of those card rails? And the period that you were building Vendicia was really the period when fintech went from kind of a niche function to something that became really driven by Silicon Valley to change the distribution rails of financial products. How would you characterize your experience with the financial rails and any observation that you have on the development of that fintech infrastructure during the time period? So the best way to think about the fintech infrastructure, especially the credit card and debit card kind of infrastructure, is to imagine that it was written in 1980 and has not been moved forward much at all. The thing that's kind of difficult about the credit card infrastructure is I had a lot of folks when I was running Medicia come to me and you know accomplished entrepreneurs who had overturned you know, or disseminated major industries going, I want to somehow beat Visa and MasterCard. And the problem is, is that it's like Visa and MasterCard do a pretty crappy job, but it's just good enough that it's actually really, really hard to directly disintermediate them. And in fact, the only real way to directly understand them is to shift the banking paradigm underneath. And I think that's the real opportunity here in cryptocurrency and blockchain is, you know, right now for a whole host of historical and somewhat good consumer reasons, anybody can say they didn't do that transaction on a credit or debit card and get their money back. And that has huge knock-on effects. But cryptocurrency, you know, finality is one of the key things. When you send Bitcoin or Chia to somebody else in a couple blocks, you know that the reorg window's over and you've actually got that money. And all of a sudden, you can do transactions that are worth a penny or worth, you know, a dollar. And I think that's the only way in some ways to kind of undo the stranglehold that the commercial banking network through credit and debit cards kind of has on all online commerce. Yeah, absolutely. Doing a platform leap rather than doing incremental improvements and trying to build on a foundation that is that is embarrassing to say out loud. Or, you know, if you name it, it might fall apart from all the wind, right? You know, now, I, I do think that a lot, like a lot of people often kind of take these transformational shifts a little too strongly. And what I mean by that is, it's probably going to make a lot of sense for a while to subscribe to Spotify. There's a whole host of reasons why. But 
adding on to that, you know, specific content or like live shows online, these are the places where I think we see a lot of innovation where it makes a whole lot more sense to have these kind of immutable direct transactions at different price points. So I think it's a I think it's a important shift in that there's really no way to kind of do these kinds of transactions on the internet today. But I don't think it necessarily is, you know, every single thing moves. Now, it may be that the entire rails of the financial infrastructure and banking itself moves, and therefore it all moves over. But I think that's the path more than just, you know, all the subscription services fall apart and all become pay-per-view. So that gets us a great transition into Chia. And maybe we can just start with a high-level overview of, you know, what is the network, why does it exist, and what motivated it to to be summoned into existence? Well, so I think the key motivation to start with is that Bram and I both believe that blockchains and cryptocurrency have the power to secure human rights. You know, it really is an opportunity to build the last mile of the rule of law in places where the rule of law is not so great, and to go forward to a world where we have to trust less middlemen, less transaction services, even here in the West where things work kind of well. So what Chia very much is, is Bram and a team of cryptographers like Dan Benet and Christoph Piacek looking at the state of the art in cryptography, looking where Bitcoin got so much right, looking at some of the challenges that Ethereum and Solidity have, and building from scratch a new consensus mechanism and programming environment that address the two biggest complaints that we see, or the two biggest reasons we see that we haven't seen mainstream adoption of blockchain. On the consensus mechanism size, it's a proof of space and time. I like to say it's really proof of unused space and elapsed time. It's the only other Nakamoto consensus. And way back up, a Nakamoto consensus is anything that uses the longest chain rule. So proof of work in, block, in Bitcoin, obviously, you know, Ethereum 1, same thing. But instead of using compute kind of real time, you fill your hard drive up with bingo cards, and it's kind of proof of work amortized over many years. So you do a little bit of proof of work up front. You save it on your hard drive. The proof of time actually is the bingo card caller. It goes, you know, here's my, here's the number that's going to win. If you have a proof of space that's very close to this number, you're going to be the block validator here. So the farmers all listen to that. And when they hear that they are close, they can create a block, transmit it to the blockchain network, very much like proof of work in that sense. What we love about it is that space is a dual use process. You know, there's a ton of it after four years coming out of data centers that used to get shredded. A lot of that is now going to, to farm Chia. And people buy storage, you know, it kind of stays half empty until they need it. And then when they're done, you know, it gets empty again. There's something like a zettabyte of storage out there of the eight zettabytes that's out there that's empty. We currently have about 35 exabytes of storage securing the Chia blockchain. And the thing I think that's most notable about this is that we are now the most decentralized by full node count ever blockchain. We have about 220,000 full nodes around the world. For example, in Ukraine, we have about 2,300 nodes, which is more nodes than most blockchains have, period. That's sadly down from 2,700 since the war started. So we're excited about that because it's keeping the strengths of proof of work without the energy consumption. We use about 500 times less power for the same unit of security. What would it take somebody to run a full node? So the full node software is very lightweight, kind of like Bitcoin. The difference between Bitcoin and Chia is that you can also farm very easily. So as long as you have unused hard drive space around, you fill that up, 
And now you're an actual farmer validator as if you were a miner in Bitcoin. You join a pool because obviously if you have a small amount, you know, you're not going to win very often. But in the pool, you know, you're going to get your Chia payout daily. And all of a sudden, empty space you weren't using is making you money. Once you need that space back, you can slowly but surely delete your farm and you just, you know, slightly lower your odds of winning. I'm going to ask this question. I don't know if it's a good one, but I'm interested in it, which is thinking about the currency. You know, one of the things I've noticed, kind of the market capitalization of the currency being stable over the last couple of years, but then the price of the marginal unit of the currency seeing a lot of pressure. And so I'm not interested in a discussion of, you know, which way the direction the price goes, but it's more of a question of, you know, so much of launching a network whether it's a computational protocol, it's a file storage protocol, it's a DeFi protocol, so much of the launching of the network is designing and tweaking the crypto economic incentives in such a way as to drive win-win outcomes. I guess, how do you think about that? Is it sometimes too easy for people to mine and therefore they create selling pressure? Is it, I guess, just more generally uh, is a prompt to talk about the crypto economics of the network and how that evolves? Yeah, so... Bram and I wanted to have a pretty fair launch. So there was no investor with coins. The only people who had coins when the first transaction hit, and by the way, that was less than a year ago, which I think is really critical to kind of thinking about this. May 3rd was the first transaction. There was a tremendous amount of FOMO. And at first, you know, if you were a farmer, you had a real opportunity to print a lot of money very quickly. It initially opened at $2,000, which was a good 100x above where Bram and I thought it would open. So, you know, there was a little bit of euphoria that we're dealing with. That said, I think the key driver here is that we're in a very inflationary period. You know, that first halving is when we're trying to make sure that we're getting coins out to farmers and getting those coins widely distributed. So, you know, we're about a year into that at this point because we did launch farming uh, a little over a year ago in March. So, We think that, you know, as a very, very young blockchain, that a lot of the ongoing demand is starting to just ramp up. You know, we've already talked about uh, the World Bank using us with the 170 nations of the Paris Agreement. That system doesn't use a lot of block space yet, but that system is designed to be the basis for people to trade real carbon credits on-chain using Chia and retiring them on Chia. And we'll be talking about that more very soon. But we think that, you know, couple billion market is the one that's going to be one of the things that drives a lot of activity on Gia. The other thing that's been driving a lot of activity is our NFT pre-sales folks who are waiting for our NFT standard, which is going to come out here in the next month or so. And I think that's going to continue to drive a lot of activity. You know, we have a a somewhat superior offering to a lot of the NFT platforms where it is, you know, both a sustainable consensus, so the concern that people are you know, using a ton of electricity isn't there. And I think we're going to be able to deliver on a lot of the promises that have been made about things like royalties and other things that our NFTs are going to be able to enforce relatively well on-chain in a way that a lot of other NFTs kind of are promising but not delivering. Right. So to that point about the crypto economics kind of supply and demand bit, I think uh, it's a fantastic display of interest that you had lots of folks who were participating early on. And I think what you're talking about with the release schedule and so on, all of that makes sense. How is the coin consumed? Which mechanisms use it? You know, Is it a gas token? Is it a unit of account for applications within the chain? For somebody who's not familiar with the chain, how would you describe 
the purpose of the coin itself. Yeah, so it is very much Bitcoin with one provisio. So, you know, it is designed to be a unit of account and potentially a store of value, but we are very focused on the, you know, unit of account to do real transactions on top of. So, you know, the Chia asset token standard is doing an ERC-20 coin, but in the UTXO model really, really well and making it a kind of native piece of the chain, allowing things like what we call offers where you're actually able to trustlessly trade any Chia asset token or Chia or between two any Chia asset tokens. And by the way, you know, here's 100 Chia in my NFT for your NFT. And that transaction is not cheatable and doesn't require an escrow agent. The piece that's a little different than Bitcoin is that every coin in Chia is itself a smart coin. So it is using Chia Lisp inside the coin. And so each one has a cost so that you have to basically make sure that you can't use up more than the block. And obviously you pay a fee per cost. That fee is in Chia and that Chia goes to the winning farmer. So the farmer collects a fee and a farming reward for every block. So it is, you know, an ongoing perpetual access to the blockchain. And in fact, we think that there's been a lot of struggle to try to figure out how to value blockchains. And this basic concept of the real base value of any coin is the demand for fees. It is how much do people want to pay long term to get access to blocks? Because blocks are if you believe the trilemma from Vitalik, and we do, blocks are the one scarce resource. So to the extent that you're able to build demand for block space, then that's the at least minimum valuation of your coin. So, so we're very focused on getting real utilization. There is a building of bridges and connectors between computational chains these days. And then there's, a, of course, a building of various securitization infrastructure, wrapping infrastructure between chains that are focused on value, like how do you get Bitcoin onto Ethereum, you wrap it, and so on. And whereas a couple of years ago, many people, including me, would have made the statement that you know these are networks and they have power laws, and so the power law will, will make the one network beat the rest of them, and now it's just a race. It appears that things are differentiating into particular use cases, but still getting attached to each other in sometimes in quite clunky ways, but nonetheless getting attached to each other into what appears to be a Frankenstein multi-chain future. What is your view on how Chia connects into that, as well as what some potential destinations could be for the market in the long run? Well, I do think there's definitely going to be bridges across these assets. The challenge is I think people are underestimating the security of those bridges, or underestimating the, the difficulty of the security of those bridges. And, you know, look, we've got two massive data points here in the last three or four weeks, right? 600 million in the latter, 300 million in the former. You know, we already support things like atomic swaps via Lightning for Bitcoin. But again, you know, that's, that's a bridge and it's not a bridge, right? Like the native assets are staying on the native chains. You are swapping value. But it's not the bridge you're talking about. And, you know, we're excited about being able to potentially build some of those bridges, but we worry very much about their security. And I think this gets to an important point about where we're at. Right now, DeFi and the assets that are available on the various chains have extremely high risk tolerances. You know, they're willing to lose $300 million. But if you talk to a commercial bank, none of them want to go to their CEO and go, hey, we lost $100 million to a solidity reentrancy bug. And I think that the network effect of real assets coming onto chains is going to be real. 
I think you're going to want to get closer to those real assets. And as those real assets start paying real yield, you know, things like mortgage-backed securities, which sounds silly, but my gosh, it's actually perfect for blockchain. Things like bonds and green debt and all of these things that have very real-world profitability and cash flows, I think that's going to draw a lot of folks to those real assets. I think most of the things we see today on chain are at best synthetics and at worst are kind of part of the crypto casino. Here's a fun question. And in part, it gets me thinking back to our conversation about MP3s and music consumption and also email, as well as credit card transactions over the net. And you know, the premise is the velocity of consuming these digital goods, these digital objects, just used to be so much slower. You send a couple of letters or maybe a couple of emails a week, or you might have had a few CDs that you loved and they would rotate in your car from your 24 CD pack. And today we're in an environment where we send hundreds of thousands of emails and we consume I'm not even going to estimate, but at least certainly thousands, if not hundreds of thousands of songs per year, you know, and so there's this velocity of digital economy because the friction is gone. And then I think about, you mentioned bonds and digital assets. And, you know, I think about the friction that's inherent in doing market transactions or business or structuring of financialization, of splitting out cash flows, of understanding risk. And all this is still an extremely slow and, and human-powered process. And so I guess the, the question I'm trying to get to is, how do you think about the velocity of tokens and tokenization in the future? You know, Are we going to see a similar acceleration in the financialization of the real world down to the very basics down to things that we today think are trivial are going to have market values. Can you draw some parallels between the transformations you've seen in other industries and maybe some implications if, you know, Chia reaches mass scale, if, if Web3 reaches mass scale? So I, I think you're absolutely onto something. I mean, right now it'd be, if people knew how like CDOs and mortgage-backed securities or all these kind of more, I don't know, interesting assets traded, it's literally people on Bloomberg IM. And that's a pretty horrible way to build a market. You know, when you back up and you look at cryptocurrency globally and you look at like Bitcoin and Ethereum, you've got these 24 by 7 huge deep markets. Now, they're not super deep. There's only like 20 billion of Bitcoin per day. And we start talking about, you know, all funds flows or, you know, the bugaboo topic of these days are the Russians moving money on Bitcoin. They're not. That depth of market, that 24-7 nature, that cross-market and cross-platform capability set, when you start applying it to traditional financial assets, you know, you're talking about like making mortgages cheaper for end users if mortgage-backed securities have more people able to buy them. You know, there, there's a funny trade where if you think your mortgage is, you know, at risk or dangerous, buying a mortgage-backed security for yourself in a tranche might actually be a useful thing to do. There's this key thing there, which is these markets you haven't had access to. And it's not necessarily because somebody doesn't want you to. It's because it's actually really hard to make those assets public and well-traded and understood. The neat thing about you know smart contracting and blockchains is that you can actually build those assets, and those assets can even do things like confirm that you're an accredited investor and therefore remain completely regulatory compliant. I, I think bringing the 24 by 7, the depth, the narrowing of spreads, you know, I think that's one of the things that's 
problematic about Solidity and the account model is it's not very good at narrowing spreads, and we think the UTXO model and Shealist can narrow spreads. You know, doing that is to really enhance pretty globally how all financial rails work. Absolutely. And one of the things that you've brought up before that I want to make sure we have a chance to touch on is the idea of compliance. And, you know, for the very youngest generation of NFT holders and people aspiring to have CryptoFunk credentials, there's this allergy, there's this like skin crawling sensation when you say the word compliance. Nobody's thinking through, oh, we need something for consumer protection or we need something that allows governments to say yes, right? There's just sort of a a cultural allergy to KYC AML. But that might not be the right stance to get to worldwide penetration. Can you talk about how Chia thinks about compliance, what is meant by compliance, and then what implication of doing it right gets us to. Absolutely. So, you know, when we're talking about compliance, I will say that one of the key things we're talking about is, for example, the Chia coin itself has never been sold for money, much less an investment of money. And therefore, it's not a security. You know, a lot of people talk about having traditional finance run on various blockchain rails, and most of those blockchain rails, the underlying coin is security. It's not clear to me that somebody like Exxon or Meta can go buy a security that's illegal in the United States to then go, for example, buy a carbon credit. I think that the knee-jerk reaction, though, around KYC and AML is not necessarily wrong. There are certain assets that I think are absolutely going to need that. And one of the things we like about the Chia infrastructure is, you know, I think there are going to be what I would call bad CBDCs shipped on the Chia infrastructure because they're going to have, you must be of national registry or national resident X. And I think that's an important kind of like alpha or beta of these things. But I do not think, for example, a U.S. CBDC should be so intimately trackable as it would otherwise be today, you know, if it were done like circle, right? But I think that there is, well, when people tell you that the securities laws and the Howey test are unclear, they're generally telling you that they have an interest for it to be unclear. It's not that hard. If you sold something to somebody who expects it to go up based on your efforts, it's a security. Once we start to embrace that and deal with it, then we're able to go lean back on the technology to do the right thing here. So as much as we're saying we need to be compliant, we need to give asset issuers the tools they need, because there are going to be some asset issuers who need to restrict something so that U.S. citizens can't buy it. I hate that. Bram hates that. But this is the reality. However, we also are leaving those tools for the asset issuer who wants to do a fully compliant, say, regulation crowdfunded offering that then immediately trades on DeFi exchanges in a way that's totally legal. That's not that hard to do, and it's something we're going to really sort of help people understand how to do it. But this gets to the key issue. We can ignore these issues and remain a 18% of Americans on cryptocurrency, or we can embrace, deal with, push back where appropriate. So, you know, for example... In the United States, KYC AML, you know, if you're doing a peer-to-peer transaction, there is no reason the government needs to know anything about that transaction. And importantly, you know, here in the U.S., we are all considered innocent until proven guilty. You know, these things should take warrants. They should require, you know, all of the things that we require of normal transactions. And there's a bit of an overhang, I think, where, you know, because everything's intermediated in the traditional financial world, the... OFAX and others of the world have gotten used to being able to rely on a warrant exception. I don't think they're going to be able to rely on that warrant exception moving forward. 
So, you know, when, when people see compliance, I think they need to understand that we're going to have to be thoughtful about which rules we enable and follow and very thoughtful about the few that we push back on. So, for example, the definition of exchange is going to be one of the things I think that DeFi and blockchains are all going to go, you know, kind of up against the traditional world. I believe we're going to win that conversation, but that conversation is happening in real time. I think the SEC's comment window ends on their current exchange redefinition in about four or five days. So the key thing for me is, and this has been a long conversation inside the cypherpunks, it's like, do you say totally cypherpunk faithful, or do you make this digestible so that it becomes something everyone can use while keeping the technology as strong, as decentralized, as secure as you can? Bram and I fall in that latter camp. I joke we're cypherpunks and sport coats. Awesome. That's a fantastic place, I think, for us to wrap. If our listeners want to learn more about Chia, to follow you or Bram, where should they go? Bram and I are both pretty active on Twitter. He is at Bram Cohen and I am at Hoffman G. The Chia Project, Chia underscore project on Twitter, but Chia.net is the primary gateway to all things Chia. Fantastic. Gene, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you. Hi, everyone. That's it for this week's episode of the Fintech Blueprint. For more technical deep dives into all things fintech and decentralized finance, check out fintechblueprint.com and grab a free subscription to the newsletter. This is Lex, and I'll see you next time. <music>